0: Welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Anne Gordon here with my friend and chavruta, your Dana Osband. Our daf of the day, Masacha Beita, Daf Lamed Vav, page thirty-six. Uh, the first part of this daf really continues the discussion that we've already encountered um, about the skylight and the hole in the roof, and you know what you can do to protect the fruit by bringing it in through the skylight and also covering anything that's on the ground. You know that might be disturbed by a leak. So And there's an even uh, an interesting discussion of the leak. Um, But I want to come to here. I want to come to the discussion on, it's towards, I don't know, it's a long doff. It's kind of towards the end, but not quite that far um, on Ahmed Aleph, where we're talking about this same concept, right, of protecting uh, whatever needs protection from the weather, right, whether it's Yantif. In this case, we're going to talk about Shabbos. So the first case, what you're talking about, can you spread a mat over stones, even though those stones themselves might be muksa? And the Gemara continues, Tashma, Porcin Machatzelat Agabe Kaveret dvorim bishabat You can spread a mat over a beehive on Shabbos, Bechama, to protect it from the sun. Mipnechama, sorry, Bechama, but Mipnechama. In the warm days and the sunny days, because of the sun, O Bichamim Mipnechamim. And in the rainy season, from the rain. As long as you're not planning on trapping the bees, you know, which is its own prohibited malacha, then the phenomenon of protecting the bees by putting a mat over the bees, which technically, I suppose, does trap them, or at least somewhat, um, is not considered trapping, it's considered protecting, and you're allowed to do it. And then the question is, you know, know, to what extent... um, are you allowed to do this? Because the Gemara, you know, has has more intensive conversation about this also with regard to Shabbat. And the question here is, when you've got honey, meaning dvash from the bees, right? If you could eat that on Shabbat, then all the more so you can handle that mat, right? Because you're talking about food stuff that would that you is ready to go, right? Meaning nowadays we very often pasteurize honey, but the point is that it's food that if you want, if you needed honey on Shabbat, you could go to your beehive. Protected, I hope, and pull out some honey. And so, therefore, moving the mat aside is not considered a mukhsa problem because you're going to get food that you might need. So then, Amar Le Rav Ukva Mimeshan Le Rav Ashi, Rav Ukva from Meshan says to Rav Ashi, He says, All right, this makes sense if we're talking about the season, the summer season, when in fact there's an issue of. Um, you know, it's the hot weather and there is indeed honey, but why would you be what are you protecting really in the winter in the rainy season, you know, how much are you worried about in terms of what you're trying to protect here so the Gemara says, well if you've got two honeycombs that are left in, the, in your beehive Right, And that's what's supposed to sustain the bees throughout the winter. You know, then that's enough to protect. That's what you're worried about protecting. And the fact is, you know, this is something that I'm not sure the Gemara knew as much about as we know these days, but the, the role of the bees in the, I don't know what, the cycle, the ecology, and the environment, we now know that the bees play a critical, critical role. So protecting honeycombs that will protect the bees is actually a very reasonable amount of protection these the honeycombs themselves, right? are they considered muksa because you know, or you, they you're protecting them for the sake of the bees, right? You're not taking anything from them for the sake of people.. So really, what we're talking about is these honeycombs where the beekeeper had a plan, that he was eventually going to take the honeycombs from the bees and he would, you know, partake of them. So that it turns out the Gemara kind of walks back this idea that we're protecting the bees and says, really, we're protecting the food that a, a person might have taken himself. And then the Gemara goes on. Aval lo mai. What if he didn't have any plan for them and you still have these two honeycombs in the beehive in the winter? Can you then cover the, the beehive with a mat to protect it or not? So the Gemara says, Asur, and says, shouldn't, you know, that should be pro- prohibited. You know, that it goes into the category of making sure that you don't have a plan to do any trapping, right? But then, is that is that a fair thing? Is that a fair distinction to make when we're talking here about um, where there's no reason for somebody to be protecting? the beehive, and the, the food inside, the honeycomb inside, except for the sake of the bees. So the Gemara continues, my, what happens if the beekeeper had no intent to take the honeycombs, right? the That's the ostensible permit that allows him that we're going to say, oh, yes, you, could, you can cover the beehive with a mat because you're going to take, the beekeeper is going to take the beehives, these two uh, honeycombs. But if there's no intent to do so, the gemara says asur. Like, shouldn't that be a prohibited act to put the mat over to protect the beehive? Because there's no interest, there's no personal human interest in these honeycombs. So then, why would we be covering? Since the mishnah says, I guess it's a brighter Says straight up, um, you know, as long as you have no intent to do trapping, right? Then you can put the mat on. But then, if there's no value, there's no doing with those bees, isn't it inherently trapping them? <speaking> <krijighton> no, sorry, <speaking in> the <language> <speaking in> the <language> my eye um, did not do well with the d- Dalad and the Rish. <speaking in the language> so let's make a distinction. Okay, and we're going to say, <speaking in the language> So then that's going to be the distinction. If you have in mind to take the honeycombs, that's permitted. That's permitted to put the mat on top of the beehive to protect the honeycombs inside. But if he did not have in mind, then that's going to be prohibited. But the Gemara takes one more wrinkle here. He says, the Gemara says, It's not so simple as to say, as long as he had in mind to take the honeycombs, also, you have to say, you know, we have to eliminate the other problem, which is the matter of muksa. that if he has, you know, we have on the one hand, we want to make sure that you can actually cover the mat, cover the beehive with a mat to protect the honeycombs. But on the other hand, if there's an intent to, to trap the bees, then the fact that he wants the honeycomb is not sufficient to get rid of the concern that he might actually be trapping.
1: I love this passage because so far we've been so focused on shrita, and now we get to like a totally different type of food um, and its own issues in preparation and muxa. How would you actually go about using it? Um, I just thought it was really, uh, it was a food I hadn't considered that would be a problem on on yom tov. Um, I'm going to move to a sort of kind of disgusting topic that's on the DAF, but I also think one that's important, because a lot of what the staff is talking about is sort of this issue of MUXA and what can be moved around and cannot be moved around. And again, I think it shows us the seriousness with which Muksa was taken. So the, the section starts off with the following uh, Mishnah. ben clean, Shabbat, right? That, you know, you can put a vessel, you put a cleave beneath a leak in order to catch water on Shabbat. Tana, right? A sage taught. Uh, as someone teaches an abraser. So let's say the clee eventually becomes full of that leaking water. You can pour it out. You can basically put the clee back under the lake and you can keep repeating this, right? And he doesn't. He doesn't need to prevent himself from doing this, right? And so what the issue is is that once the bucket is sort of empty, what's the status of that empty? bucket right like once you dump the water out right what's the what's the status of that empty bucket and so the point here is you can keep you don't need to worry about it being muksa. you could just keep repeating and filling that bucket up then they tell this weird story about abaya so mill millhouse once developed a leak right so in other words he had this mill house. And he, you know, obviously gets concerned that something is going to get ruined because mill houses were sort of made, they were made primarily or, or partly of clay. And so if there's a leak, uh, there, would be a, a, there would be a problem there. And so part of the issue here is, you know, did he have necessarily enough buckets to get all the water from this leak without having to empty them and continue to refill, refill them? Um, but the other issue is is that the water that's coming in through this leak might not actually be good for drinking. So what's the status of it? Is it muksa to keep moving the the water around, right? So he goes to Raba to basically ask Raba what should he do. So Raba says to him, go and put your bed in this millhouse. So the dirty water will basically be considered like a container. This is what the the kigarav shel which is a container of excrement. Which basically, this container of excrement. The point of it is, is that yes, technically it's muksa, but you're allowed to move it on Shabbat or on Yom Tov because it's so repulsive. So in other words, if he puts his house in the mill house, right, his bed, excuse me, in the mill house, and he basically wants to like sleep sort of in there. It's disgusting to sleep in a room with like this gross, dirty, non-drinkable water. So once that's there, Rob is basically saying, okay, you can basically move the water as much as you need to move the water. So if I thinks about this, and I love this because it's like, he doesn't just take an answer from his Rebbe, he actually like, he, you know, thinks about him and he's like, okay, I got the psaac and obviously psaac that helped him, but he comes and he gives a kasha to this. He gives a question to this. So he says, right? Like, can somebody basically, you know, initiate or start having this container of excrement? In other words, can somebody intentionally, you know, put anything that's repulsive or disgusting, right, in a situation where they know they're going to have to remove it? And so when this happened, as he was thinking about this, his millhouse collapsed. Amar Tati leads to Avri admar. And so then he says, this happened to me because I went against the words of my master. In other words, he basically makes this link that here he sort of was questioning, like, well, you know, he was going to didn't want to necessarily follow what Rabba told him to do. And what ultimately happened mill millhouse collapsed. And he basically says, you know, this must have happened. This was sort of a punishment because of what I, you know, because I questioned him. So I just thought this was a really interesting story. Uh, The question is interesting. I think it also tells us something else about their life, right? Like people obviously went to the bathroom in the rooms that they were in. They didn't necessarily always go to an outhouse. Um, But also this whole concept of sort of like, you know, when are you allowed to sort of question your Rebbe or not question your Rebbe? And Abai here is recognizing that he probably should not have questioned his Rebbe. Then the Gemara goes on to say, Amr Shmuel. Shmuel says, now we're just going to talk about this topic of Garef Shau'i. Garef Shau'i va'vit al-memei raglain. Reg- so when you have a container of excrement and a container of urine, mutar lo tian lash you can take them out to the garbage heap. when he comes back, meaning when he brings the empty container back to his house, no tembo mayu machsiro. He has to put some water in it and then he can bring it back because the empty container by itself right because it's like foul and it smells and it's disgusting it's muksa, because it's not anything that you really need or that you actually want okay so varmenate stood from this from what shmuel, basically right a container of excrement agav mana e yes right so it's permitted right it's it's you're allowed to remove the excrement by itself but without right without a vessel but right but um uh, sorry you can you can move remove it with a vessel bifnaot smolo but by itself you're not allowed to remove it so in other words it's almost like the excrement has to be in a vessel itself toshma so now the Gemara basically wants to <clears throat> conclude with this and says tells us the following story tahaku akbarta so there once was a dead mass that was found in Rav Ashi's storeroom for spices. So that's what an East Parmakay is. Amri Luhu Rav So Rav Ashi said, you know, either to his servants or somebody else who was in the house, So he says, take hold of it by its tail and you can remove it. So actually, what this shows is that the repulsive thing actually can be removed uh, exactly by itself. So there's a little bit of discussion here based on what Shmuel said, because Shmuel basically names it as right? that it's container of excrement or container of urine, right? So maybe on the understanding of that is, is that what he's saying is, is that it's the container with the foul thing. That's what it's allowed to removed. But to remove the excrement by itself, know that you're not allowed to. And then ultimately the Kamara comes and shows the story of Ravasha where they say, no, if you have something disgusting that's in your house, you're obviously allowed to remove it. So again, I think this demonstrates us not something we necessarily want to think about, the very practical issue that took place, um, you know, and not even something that we would think about. Like, of course, you should be able to move something disgusting. But I think it really shows us how seriously the halakha category of muksa was taken that even the idea of removing something repulsive, something repulsive by itself has to be muxa by nature because it has no purpose. And so it was taken seriously. It's really a discussion whether or not you could even remove it.
0: I'm struck by, um, you know, they talk about how halakha approaches just everything. You know, we cover everything in halakha. We don't keep it just to the clean and tidy. And this is, you know, A very strong example of how we're going to say, yeah, everything, really everything. Um, Okay, we've got a Mishnah, and I think it's actually an important Mishnah at the end of the Daf here. Um, Your data, you mentioned when we were preparing that you thought this should be the first Mishnah of the Masachet, so everybody can, you know, listen with that question in their minds as we go through it, and I'll then I'll uh, explain what I think. So shvut is a technical term that means it's a rabbinic prohibition as opposed to a Torah prohibition. Okay, so anybody who has an, has incurred a liability uh, because of a rabbinic decree, Mishum uh, Shavuot, Mishum meaning they're trying to um, treat the day of Shabbat as, as a holy day, right? But so some of the rules pertaining to Shabbat are the and some of them are drabanan And so then we come into this cat, you know, the question of the day is all in the cat in the category of rabbinic law. Mishum. So we have here mishum shvut, mishum mishum mitzvah. So if you were obligated in any way, you've incurred any liability, whether because we're talking about uh, that it's a day of rest, which would be the shvut, or because it was an optional thing or because, in fact, you're fulfilling a mitzvah. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. meaning if these things are prohibited on Shabbat and you would be culpable for them, then they are also situations where you would be uh, culpable for them on Yom Meaning, it, it it makes the claim in these first few words of the. Everything that would be a, a prohibition on Shabbat is also prohibition on Yom And now we've got a list of what of these rabbinic enact, enactments. You don't climb a tree. You don't ride on an animal's back. You don't go swimming in the water. This is interesting. You don't clap uh, your hands together. And you don't clap you know, assumingly, presumably for for uh, music, not for an exc- exclamation, right? Uh, your hand to your leg, and you don't dance. And these are the optional things from Shabbat. Lo danin, You don't judge, you don't betroth a woman, you don't do the process for somebody who's going to end a Levite marriage. Uh, and you don't do the live-right marriage. These things presumably will all take place, just not on Shabbat. These are things that are prohibited on Shabbat because they're mitzvahs, but they're still not something you can do on Shabbat. So you can't, you don't consecrate, you don't dedicate to the Mikdash. You don't take a, a vow of evaluation. You don't consecrate um, items, you know, other other items to the Kohanim or to the Beit HaMikdash, and you don't take Trumot Amaisro from produce. All of these things are discussed as being prohibited on Yantif, and so there's a Kavachomer about Shabbat, which is an interesting, it's kind of the opposite of the first opening claim of the Mishnah that says all of these things that would incur a liability on Shabbat, are also going to incur a liability. And on Yantif, here it says, all of these things were discussed about Yantif, all the more so they're going to be a problem for Shabbat. yom tov ochel And this statement is a mission, it's in the mission here, it's in the mission of Migila. It's a statement that is, you know, batted about quite a bit, that there's no dis- there's no distinction in the obligations of Yantif and Shabbos. They're the same, except for the preparation of food. Because the food preparation, as we know from throughout this masachet, but also from we know we know from our lives, uh, preparing food on Yantif is acceptable to cook, to to grind, to whatever it needs to be done, right? If we're talking about shchita, we're talking about, you know, to the nth degree, you can really um, prepare your food for the meal as long as you're going to have that meal on Yantif. And we do not do that on Shabbat. On Shabbat, we do all the preparations in advance, meaning things like, again, things like grinding or cooking or, Okay. So this Mishnah on the one hand is our understanding of of uh of yantif of Masakh Beta altogether, right? The idea that we're talking about how are we making the day of yantif, you know, on the one hand it's so important, it's like Shabbos. On the other hand, we've got a, a caveat of the O'Hal Nefesh. It's not quite that strong. So your data, I understand, I'd like to hear more from you why you think it should be the opening Mishnah. My feeling is that if this were presented to us at the beginning. We would not yet have the appreciation for it that we do now, and I think that the if we want to talk about it, something that's going to grab our attention for all that the eggs, the the I think you once called it gymnastics, Eudina, the mental gymnastics that are applicable to the eggs of what day was it laid from which chicken and how do you know and all of that. Um, on the one hand, you know the math of it can become a little bit complicated and perhaps not everybody's cup of tea, but on the other hand, it's really diving right in to you know, to the phenomenon of there being something on yantif that is going to be, you know, out of bounds, that is prohibited. Whereas here, this seems to be, on the one hand, very foundational, and perhaps less of a dramatic opening.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it just would have been, look, we know the Mishnah doesn't do introductory Mishnayos. It just sort of hoppits in. So it makes sense that the first Mishnah is about Beitzah. Um, but I think, so maybe in a way, putting it later in the Masachet, Sort of brings together many of the different concepts that we've been discussing throughout, right? Shvud, reshut, And it's really going through all of these different categories, uh, you know, and really outlining it of things that are just, we're not allowed to do on Yom Tov and Shabbat.
0: Uh, yeah, I think that's true. I think that's accurate.
1: Well, that's our top discussion for the day. Rink us reviewers on all major podcasts. Thank you to Revenue Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this stuff in our Talking Talent Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.